Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread, and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another podcast of our Common Grounds Unity Discussions. want to welcome you, and if this is your first time joining with us, we hope that this is the beginning of a relationship that will open your, your heart and your mind to some things related to unity. We have conversations with people who are a part of Stone Campbell Restoration Churches, and today I'm excited to introduce our guest. We're going to be uh, talking with Mark Nelson. Mark uh, has a book called Reframation, and we're going to be talking about that book and some other things that Mark is a part of. He has over 32 years of experience in vocational ministry, ranging from youth ministry uh, to campus ministry at Purdue University in Indiana. He serves on the boards of Forge America, Forge Global, and Church Partners of the Smokies as well as being a part of the leadership of 100 Movements Publishing. In more recent years, he has served as the lead pastor at the Crossing Church in Knoxville, Tennessee, a a church that he planted in that area. He uh, passed the lead pastor role off a couple of years back and focuses as well on his work as executive director of the Three Rivers Collaborative, which we'll say more about, uh, and also... Uh, Forge America. Uh, He's married to Monica. They've got three grown kids, and Monica leads the pre-nursing program at Johnson University, where he went to school. So uh, I'm going to let Alicia, our co-host, say a few things to Mark in just a moment and give him a bigger welcome, but I want to introduce her. Co-hosting with me today is Alicia Crumpton, and she is on the board of uh, Common Grounds Unity, and just does a lot of work with our, our movement and our organization. And I'm not going to give you a lengthy introduction, Alicia, because we did an interview with you just a number of weeks back with the board. And so our listeners uh, know who you are. If they don't, you need to go back and listen to that podcast at the close of season one. Alicia, welcome. And why don't you kick off our interview with Mark and let him introduce himself to us? Mark, it's just great to be with you today and to learn more about uh, your book, Reformation, and the work that you're doing with the Three Rivers Collaboration. Why don't you just tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and your journey to this point today? Yeah, as uh, as the introduction said, I'm, I'm married, have children. Uh, I've been in vocational ministry for 35 years, done a little bit of everything with youth ministry, campus ministry. 
And then church planning for the last 15 years. Um, I have 10 more days uh, as, uh, as a part of the staff at Crossings Church. For the last 12 months, we've been in a transition from me as a lead pastor to, some, to, uh, to a, a new lead pastor. And during that time, I've transitioned to begin work with Three Rivers Collaborative at, at Johnson University. So I, I grew up in the church, uh, so much so that at three months old, I was baby Jesus. Mom and dad were Joseph and Mary and in, in the Christmas nativity, which if you think about, I've always found it hard to play another character. You know, once you play King of Kings, what are you going to do? Play a shepherd, you know, or an <laughs> angel or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, my life has been in the church and my transformations have happened over and over and over again in my 58 years. Well, Mark, we're glad to have you with us. And, and this particular interview today is the kickoff to a theme uh, that we're going to be covering over the next several podcasts. Um, th- this theme is a time to tear down and a time to build, taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 3 at verse 3. We're going to be talking to various authors, ministry leaders, and thinkers to help us recognize the things God may be calling us to tear down and those where he wants us to, to build up. So, Alicia, why don't you ask Mark a little bit about his book and uh, introduce where we're headed today. Yeah, Mark, I know that Alan Hirsch and you authored the book, Reformation, Seeing God, People, and Mission Through Reenchanted Frames. I'm curious about that use of the word reenchanted. Why don't you give us an overview of the book and then say a little bit more what you mean by reenchanted and frames? Sure. Um, the whole idea of, of understanding the, the reframing is really important. Uh, the idea that you can take a picture and not change the picture, but if you would put a new frame around that picture, again, you're not changing the picture, but you allow that picture to be seen differently. You allow it to be seen for a third or fourth time. You bring it fresh and anew. I think we have similar callings to take what we know to be the truth. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, forever. That's the picture. Um, we're not changing that, but we are putting a frame around it. And when you put a new frame around an old picture, you allow that picture to be seen fresh and anew. It's similar to a scene in Dead Poet Society, which is my favorite movie of all time, when he has the entire class stand on the desk and he says, take a look around. The room hasn't changed, but you're seeing the room from a different view. I think we're trying in Reformation to get uh, people to understand Jesus and the gospel and the story in a different way. And honestly, 35 years of vocational ministry, I kind of feel like that's been my calling to get people to consider putting new frames around a picture, to see it differently, to see it fresh, whether it's youth ministry, campus ministry, church planning. I feel like that's always been my calling. And so we wrote this book to, to for one thing, to get people to consider the story of God that we're living and telling, especially and how it's being received. And, and it's not always received well. And, and I think that can be reframed, not changed, just reframed. The story of God should take our breath away. It, it, sh- it should cause us, you know, Don Everett talks about the difference between a warhead candy and tofu. <laughs> uh, nothing against tofu eaters, but tofu is <laughs> just kind of bland and it takes up the flavors of it around. But you put a warhead piece of candy in your mouth and you're like, oh my gosh, you either want to, you know, cuss at the world and spit it out, or you want to say, 
I'm alive. I see colors unlike I've ever seen before. I think the story of God through Jesus putting the world back together should be more like a warhead than a tofu. And it's not. And that's part of our responsibility. And and I think that's a call to us to consider what it might mean to reframe, to get people to stand on the desk and look at the gospel, to look at the good news, to look at Jesus, to look at the call of the church differently than ever before. Not to change it, simply to get them to give it a fresh look. One of the things I experienced while reading the book was a sense of urgency. The word reframe seems to suggest that, that, that we need to put on a new frame. Would you talk a little bit about that? Why, why do you think a reframing is needed at this time in this place? Well, honestly, the, the book was kind of birthed in 2013 when my son and I walked the Camino de Santiago. It's a spiritual pilgrimage across Spain. And we walked for 28 days together, 450 miles, 722 kilometers. Um, And it was a wonderful time. It was after he graduated school, it was my way to let go of him. So I think it was my rite of passage before he moved away from me. And it was on this Camino that I, a professional minister, walked this spiritual pilgrimage and I would meet people and you would talk a little bit. Who are you? Where are you from? And then one of the questions always was, well, what do you do? And for me to try to describe what I do as a vocational pastor, it was very difficult because even though this was a spiritual pilgrimage, I don't think many people were there for spiritual reasons. It was more adventure. It was more uh, the experience of it all. And, And I found myself feeling very helpless. And I would say, well, you know, I'm a pastor at a church in downtown city in the U.S., uh, and most people, uh, probably 60% were English speakers on this Camino. And I would say, you know, I'm I'm city center. I take care of people. We have a gathering on Sunday where we, and they go, oh, you're a priest. I go, no, 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 I'm not a priest. I'm not a priest. Well, what do you do? Well, I do this, do this. They go, yeah, 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 you're a priest. No, I'm not a priest. My problem, the, the, the crisis that I felt was, here I am, a professional Christian paid to be a follower of Jesus, in a sense, in vocational ministry. <laughs> and I was having a hard time articulating the story in a way that these people could understand what it was I did, what I felt I gave my life to. And that led me to understand that I think there's a crisis of interpretation. So if you talk about urgency, Alicia, that I think that's a phrase that I go to. And, and Walter Brueggemann talks about that when he says, uh, he says there's a crisis of interpretation that the, the story of God is being robbed of its capacity to be spoken, to, to care, to notice those in, in, on the Camino. And that crisis, I think, created in me an urgency to go, how might we consider this God that we're telling the story about? And how might we consider the story we're telling in a way that, that, again, would reframe things and allow them to see God differently than ever seen or even consider for the very first time? What a great experience, Mark, to have with your son. Well, I'd love to just have a discussion about your broader experience over those 28 days. I love it. When you, when you mentioned being a professional, a paid minister, it kind of reminds me of the old you know, story of the preacher who gets up and says, you know, I'm, I'm paid to be good, but the rest of you are good for nothing. Um, just a little joke there, folks. But, uh, you, you know, we, we go into this because our, our heart, is in wanting to serve the King of Kings. And I love your heart for wanting to make sure we're telling this story well and connecting with our 
the people that are needing to hear it and those that are walking away. Uh, I want to mention the book again, uh, Reformation, and the I didn't mention it at the start other than its name. Um, it was co-authored uh, with Alan Hirsch in 2019. So for our listeners, um, this book is published by, I want to say, 100... I'm, I'm looking for the publisher again. It's 100 uh, Movement yes. Publishing. That's mm-hmm. it, 100 Movement Publishing. So for our listeners... Pick up the book. You can get it on Amazon or uh, at, at the website, uh, reformationbook.com. Hope you'll pick it up and read it and think about the things Mark's written about here along with Alan Hirsch. Within the book, Mark, you, you use this, uh, this beautiful poetic language of romancing the city, romancing people. Can you speak to some practical ways that we can do those things and, and what you mean by that? Yeah, um, I I believe that we are all created in the image of God. I believe the Imago Dei is deep within us all. And I believe also we live in a world that does its best to cover up and bury that Imago Dei in people. And I think much of the tension that we see in life now in the world is if we could see each other as truly created in the image of God and do our best to uncover that, I, I think... I think things might turn a bit. And so when I think about what it means to romance the city and romance people, it's getting to know them in a way that I'm not loving them with an agenda. I'm not loving them because I'm a professional minister. I'm not loving them because that's what my preacher told me to do. I'm not loving them even because the Bible told me to, but I understand that we're all created the same way. And so I want to know them better. And and I believe it would change the world. There's a great book called The Art of Neighboring. And in The Art of Neighboring, I'm going to paraphrase this story, but two megachurch pastors go to uh, a mayor. I I think it's a suburban uh, town in Denver, Colorado. And they go to this mayor who is not a believer in Jesus and says, our two big churches have all this money. How might we serve the city? We could build this kind of clinic. We could do this kind of event. We could draw thousands in. What what do you want us to do to, uh, to help the city? And this mayor, again, not a follower of Jesus, said, look, if you would just get your people in your church to be better neighbors, you would literally change this city. And so to romance the city is to understand a lot of different things. For one thing, that God has already gone before us in the city, and we need to figure out what he's doing and join him in it. We're not called to go and create it necessarily as much as he's gone before us. I I think understanding that God is out there is one thing. I think the, the art of listening is another. I don't think we understand, honestly, what good news is for our neighbors. I don't think we understand what good news is for the city. And there's there's all kinds of stories around that. But I remember coaching a girl in, in Forage, which is the organization I work with. And and uh, I told her the story about if she, she was a better neighbor, she could change her neighborhood. She goes, and I said, so who are your neighbors? She goes, well, I don't know. There's this guy over here. He He's, I don't know his name. And then there's a woman over here. And I said, next week, come back and tell me what the names of your neighbors are, your whole street. She goes, okay. Took about three weeks. And I go, now I want you to, I give you another assignment. I want you to understand what they do for a living. And I want you to find out by asking them, not by reading on the side of their pickup truck and find out what they do. And then I would love for you to understand what is good news for your neighbors. Somehow in the midst of getting to know them, and this was a six month time period. So it wasn't like she did it in a week. 
I want you to understand and romance them so you understand what good news is for them. And the example that she came up with after a while was she said, well, there's an elderly lady that lives beneath me in an apartment and she doesn't get out much. And I found out that she really loves Coke in a bottle, Coca-Cola, not the drug, Coke in a bottle. And she said, you know what? So every week I go buy her a six pack of Coke in the bottle. She goes, I think that's good news for her. And that is a that is a romancing of her neighbor, in a sense, not with an agenda, simply to uncover the Imago Dei. And, and the other thing we talk about in the book is this whole, and I love this word, it's inner pathy, and it will take somewhat to understand it, uh, somewhat unpacking to understand it completely. But inner pathy is basically a sense of, of feeling with the other, of climbing into another skin and walking around in it. It's, it's from the classic To Kill a Mockingbird. When, when Atticus is talking to Scout and, and all the racial tensions and Atticus says to his little daughter, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. And I think part of us romancing a city is doing that, to understand what it means to be a good neighbor, to understand what good news is for them, to love them and uncover the Imago Dei that's deep within them. One of the things that I'm hearing you say, and I picked up throughout the book, um, for one thing, I think there's a really fresh language being used here that perhaps we aren't as familiar with in our everyday dialogue about the scriptures and what it means to be a believer. And specifically here, I'm thinking about the language of myth, story, and the imagination as being essential aspects in the lives of believers and within our faith communities. Can you help us understand a little bit more about what you're thinking there and how that sort of relates to this notion of romancing the city? Yeah, um, story is is powerful. There is a power of story uh, the place of story in our lives is huge. All human beings, I believe, are formed through narrative. I think story is what shapes our identity as people, corporately as in like where we come from, and personally through events that kind of impact our sense of who we are, what our roles are in the world, all of this. I think we are wired for stories. And I also think human beings live inside of stories. It's how we communicate with each other. It's how we connect with each other. Uh, they're how we learn. They're how we think. The stories we consume shape up, shape so much of who we are, what we do, how we act, and what we believe. And so, can I interject about, here? I, sure. I'm having an image. So, one of the topics that I'm really fascinated by is this idea of weaving the social fabric, and what does that look like? And as you were talking, I sort of had this aha moment that the stories are that connective tissue between the differing threads within the, the fabric that we're creating socially and relationally. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. I, I just was thinking about that. I think absolutely. I agree with that. I think it's how we make sense of our lives. Yeah. And I, and I think the word myth and the problem is myth is so misused. Let me tell you how we're using it in the book. It's not as in uh, fake fairy tale, false Santa Claus, Easter bunny. That's not how we define myth. And I know it can be defined that way. But myth, as we define it in the book, is are, are stories that guide, uh, orientate, illuminate whole peoples and generations. They are narrative frames through which we understand the world. A myth helpless, helps us make sense of a senseless world, I believe. If you look at C.S. Lewis's conversion story, phenomenal conversion story of Addison's walk with 
it was with Tolkien and then it was with, was it with Hugo Dyson? I, I believe, or I don't, I don't know, it was Tolkien and, and one other friend. And they walked this thing and it talks about, well, Lewis's conversion story from, you know, uh, uh, somewhat of a believer to an atheist, to a deist, to finally believing in Jesus type of thing. It was on that walk, Addison's walk, that he said, I finally understood Jesus as the true myth. He was finally able to understand and it made sense of his whole world. That's what we're looking for with myth. And that's what we're saying when we call people back to myth, not in a way that's fake or make-believe, but that is deeper than what we can maybe understand just by reading it. We know there's something deeper there. I think that's a helpful clarification. I think in the uh, myth gets a bad rap because we think it's a make-believe story, but myth has a deeper meaning around uh, in the Jungian sense, we would talk in terms of the archetypal patterns. So for example, the, the cowboy on the horse and, and that whole narrative, you might think of it in terms of genre or these stories and patterns of stories that sort of repeat over time, become part and parcel of the way we make sense of our community and being together. Is that sort of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely, completely. And, and and let's go biblical here. Of course, we know Jesus was a great storyteller, but I think it's N.T. Wright that says, you know, most people read the Bible and think it's God going, now do this and do this and do this and do this, kind of like a general and an army. And in fact, God goes, once upon a time. And he tells a story of how the world came to be. And, and, and the story of the scripture itself, I believe, is one story from beginning to end of God putting his family back together. What was right, what was good, shalom, the way it was intended to be. Genesis 1 is where that starts, which is where we should start the story, not in Genesis 3. If we start the story in Genesis 3, it's all about getting rid of sin. If we start the story in Genesis 1, it's all about getting back to the way it was intended to be. But in Genesis 3, something happened and that the way it was intended to be was busted up. I think the rest of the Bible, all 66 books, all is one story of how God's going to put that family back together. And, and so I think God is a God of stories. I mean, there's more to it than that, but we live in stories. We think in stories. We're wired for stories. That's the emphasis we try to give it in the book. I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about how you're using the term imagination here. And you know that I have, a, a, have been studying creativity and innovation and imagination. And uh, Henri Corbin actually posits the imaginal realm as a place. Uh, not in the, the, the literal physical sense, but as the, 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 the transcendent, the place of the divine where we bring back words and revelation from God. Say a little bit more about that. When you're thinking about imagination, what are you hoping for, for the church and for her people? Yeah. Um, first of all, Alicia, uh, you are the expert on imagination. I am not, but I will do my best here. Um, I do believe, uh, in a sense, a lack of imagination is what has gotten us to where we are. I think the prophets were calling us to have a, a reimagination, a reframing, if you will, in some ways. And I don't think the church understands that. Uh, we write about in the, in the book how a fairly famous religious leader at his funeral, uh, a eulogy was given for him. And let me remind you, a eulogy is something that's intended to be good. <laughs> and here, what, here was what was said about him. He waved no plumes. He wreathed no garlands, but struck from the shoulder and the vitals. And this is the worst part. 
He was destitute of, bo of poetry and barren of imagination. What a sad lament. But that is consistent with, with the description of a lot of followers of Jesus. For some reason, we're not supposed to imagine. We just accept it, move on, more science than art. I'm not saying that, that, that it should be one or the other. It should be both. And so I think this push to, to imagine and, and in the world we live in, in the crisis that we're living through together, this pandemic, we need it. Let me give you this, this analogy. So in, in researching this book, I just, we wrote very little about this in the book, but I came upon this term called theopoetics. And Amos Wilder, actually the brother of Thornton Wilder, the great, great playwright, kind of invented this. And he was a professor and a minister and a poet. And he wrote a book uh, back in the 50s, but it wasn't published till the 70s. And what he wrote about was Wilder served in World War I. And when he returned from World War I, he attempted to kind of continue the work that he'd done before, this theological work, uh, to practice the way he had done it before the war. But when he got back from the war, the world had changed so much, he was unable to continue as he had done before. The current theological understandings and the practice, it wasn't connecting with people. They weren't hearing it. The longings that the people had post-World War I were different than the longings before that. And so in response, Amos Wilder explored what kind of theology makes sense to someone who had just experienced World War I. Hence, he came up with this whole idea of theopoetics. And again, I'm not an expert on that. I could give references. COVID is our World War I. If, if we are not already, we need to explore ways to think about God, uh, to think about his story that makes sense to those of us who are living together through unprecedented times. It's going to take a great imagination to figure that out. It's going to take us thinking like we've never thought before because the world is different and what people are looking for and longing for and how they view God and how they view Jesus is different. It's like the people I met on the Camino. They had no concept of what they were doing. And, and here I was trying to explain it to them. If I don't have an imagination of how to tell that story, I end up just walking with them and finding no purpose in my walk or in any way that I tell the story of God to them. Tell us a little bit, Mark, about quieting our minds and why it's important to listen deeply to other people's stories. I, I would go back to the Imago Dei for one thing of, of, Listening deeply to people's stories allows us to understand the brokenness and the hurt that is there. Uh, I would go to John 4, which I, I, I say this about a lot of passages, but I think it's my favorite passage. <laughs> um, and John uh, and Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And um, it's this whole discussion about water. And he says, there's living water. And she says, well, let me go get my husband. And he goes, well, wait a minute. Uh, and then he, he looks into her souls and says, the man you're living with now is not even your husband. You've been married this many times. And I think what Jesus did was enter into her story in a way that unwrapped her wounds like a doctor unwraps the wounds of a patient. And he was able to listen deeply to what she, I think, I think Jesus spoke to the dehumanizing cycle that she had lived through going from one man to another man, to another man, to another man. And Jesus said, first of all, you know what? All this cultural baggage between Jews and Samaritans, I'm going to break through that. 
you know what, this whole man-woman thing where men aren't supposed to talk to women in public, I'm going to break through that. And you know what? I'm going to go even further. You've been married five times, and here I am offering you living water. And you know what? I don't care because I understand your story, and I want to offer you something you've never been offered before. I think listening deeply to people's stories allow us to understand what they're really looking for. There's a German phrase, uh, Zinzuk. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but I think I am. Zinzuk is about this longing and desire that every person has in them, that's deep within them. Uh, D.H. Lawrence has a poem, um, Terra Incognita, I think is the name. And in the poem, he talks about everybody has within them the humming of unseen harps, Mm -hmm. that there's something humming. For us to listen deeply to people means we hear those humming. We understand. Now, we can't always satisfy. We can't always give the answer that will suddenly change their lives. But we can listen. We can love. We can uncover the Imago Dei and allow God, who has gone before us, (laughs) to speak into them and uncover those wounds and treat them in a way maybe they've never been treated before. Oh, I'm... uh... I'm breathing deep as I consider the challenge that each of us face in the hardening of the heart that comes from modernity and uh, the life that we live and these these frames that we put on that, that distract us from who God is and from his story. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I'm just curious what are the two or three narratives that you think need to be torn down, reframed, deconstructed, whatever the right language is? Um, what, are there specific things that you see among us that we need to reconsider? Yeah, I, I believe um, we have taken a God that, and I know this is a podcast, but if that is this big, I'm going to hold my arms as far wide as I possibly can. <laughs> we have taken a God that is this big and we have shrunk him down to, I'm holding my fingers about two inches, about two millimeters apart. We have shrunk God down so that God can now be told in a way that fits on my napkin. He is told in a way that is narrowed down to one doctrine. Um, I, I had a friend send me an email today who says he belongs to a church that the church has publicly stated, unless this particular doctrine, uh, this particular theory is taught every Sunday, then you did not preach the gospel. Mm. We have taken a multidimensional gospel and we have reduced it and flattened it. Ed Brueggemann would say we have flattened and trivialized it. And that, that is heresy. Now, I redefined myth. Let me tell you how I'm defining heresy. And it's N.T. Wright's definition. He says the greatest heresies don't come from straightforward denial. They happen when an element, which may be important, but isn't central, looms so large that people can't help talking about it, fixating on it, debating different ideas and views as though it was the only thing that mattered. Mm. We we get this single focus and we take God and we reduce him. It's, it's like the, the old story that, by the way, every religious tradition has this story of the four blind men that go upon an elephant and they're told to describe the elephant. And they each describe the part they're holding on to as if that's the only thing. The story is so much bigger. 
the elephant is not just what one person experienced. The elephant is what it is, is the entire thing that everybody's experiencing. And for us to take a God that is this big and shrink him to this big, that, that is a story that we need to break up. Uh, you use the phrase, what needs to be torn down and, and rebuilt. It's that God is bigger than we could ever imagine. The analogy that I use that uh, I love is if I invite you into my house, and Alicia, you've been in my house, and you've come in the front door, and you've been in the living room, and probably in the kitchen, and maybe used the guest bathroom. And you would leave and go, oh, I love Mark's house. I saw the entire thing. You did not. You didn't go into the back porch as Monica. You didn't go to my office. You didn't go to my upstairs. You didn't go to the basement where I have this weird little cage where they used to hang hams in the 40s. You didn't see any of that in my house. I think God is like a house. And we go in through the foyer and we sit down at the din dinner table. We leave and we go, oh, I've experienced all of God and he is so great. You know what? You will, God is so big. You will never get to experience every room that he is in your lifetime. And this narrative that we tell that God can be contained, that God can be put on a napkin, that God can be contained in one systematic doctrine, and, and there's nothing else to consider, and that's it, and believe it, and you're done. My God is way bigger than that. If you can put my God on a napkin, he ain't my God. And so the narrative I want to bust up is I want to invite people into this room and this room and this room, and then I want them to understand that they'll keep doing that the rest of their lives it should be, you know, Eugene Peterson has this great phrase, every step and arrival. Every time there's a, a new thing we learn, every transformation, every conversion, it's a new arrival. Every room of God that I get to experience, uh, it's a brand new arrival. And if we ever stop doing that, then we have reduced God. If we ever think it can be contained just here, we've reduced God. I always say that, so I'm 58 years old. I feel like I've learned more in the last decade of my life than in the previous 48. I better keep saying that every year of my life or I will have stopped going from room to room and going, oh, there's more to God. Because every time I go into a new room, I'm blown away by the God that I experienced there. Those are, those are some narratives that I would absolutely uh, tear down to build back up. Well, what's beautiful about that, this is, is that it really ties to my understanding of imagination you know, if we're all standing and we look at a sunset and that moment when we all go, it takes our breath away, yeah. the beauty of it. But there's also awe and mystery. Like we can't imagine how the sky, how God produced this magnificent sight. It's sort of you're suggesting to us is that the return of awe and mystery about who God is is an animating force within us. And so that sort of raises the stakes, and at least in my thinking about why this is so darn important, because James Hillman says that our hearts can become hardened, that reductionism reduces us. It's mm -hmm. dehumanizing in its effect in the way that our hearts become hardened and that the aesthetic experience using the imagination, creativity, et cetera, even the capacity to imagine God as God is something that provokes the heart and animates it in a new way. It's like warhead candy and not tofu. And you're like this, I, you talk about being reanimated. 
suck on a warhead for a while. No. Your life is reanimated. I have I done I that. I haven't Mark. lived, as I have no idea what you're talking to, but I have had some bad tofu. <laughs> oh, Alicia, you need to go out and get yourself a warhead. It'll change your life. I have no idea what this is. <laughs> Halloween, go next door to a neighbor's, and they'll usually give a little out as trick or treat candy. Mark, <laughs> what a great conversation this has been. And uh, just stimulated so many thoughts and ideas. We want to continue this conversation with you on our next podcast. So Mark's going to be uh, rejoining us for the next podcast that'll drop next week. Let me mention the name of the book again for those that have been listening and would like to pick it up. It is Reformation. Am I saying that right? Because I started out saying Reframation. Um but Reformation, R-E-F-R-A-M-A-T-I-O-M. And you can uh, go to reformationbook.com, reformationbook.com. Uh, or you can pick it up, I believe, on Amazon. Google it and you'll find it. The authors are, again, uh, Mark Nelson and Alan Hirsch. So uh, we'll talk more about the book and some other aspects to your ministry and life uh, next time we're together. Alicia, great to co-host with you today. You're a great conversationalist, and your friendship <laughs> with Mark makes us all the more interesting as well. I mentioned Alicia is on our board, and uh, she was at the end of our first uh, season in our interview there, but she was also a part of our um, recent series on kind of downloading all that happened with Mars Hill and its application to our circumstances and our churches. So, Alicia, thank you for being with us today. And Mark, thank you. Um, look forward to having you back with us next podcast. Folks, join us again next week for another Common Ground Unity podcast. Mark Nelson will return. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Common Ground Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.